3,000 years ago, there lived an Egyptian pharaoh whose name was Tutankhamun, or more commonly known as King Tut. Yes, you must have heard of him. But for a very, very long time, as in for 3,000 years practically, no one had heard of this boy king who ascended to the throne at the age of nine and died 10 years later at the age of 18 or 19. And the reason why many had not heard about him was because his tomb was not discovered until 1922. Now, what we know about Egyptian pharaohs is that they are usually buried with their possessions and their treasures, meaning that it's very tempting for people to rob their graves and their tombs, right? And in the case of King Tut, there were actually over 5,000 artifacts and treasures that were found along with his mummy and his tomb. So you may be asking the question of why then have they not discovered his tomb until 1922? And archaeologists have several guesses as to why that is the case. The first one is that he was, his death was so unexpected that they actually substituted a different tomb for him that was not as big as all the other pharaoh's tombs because they just did not have time to build a big enough tomb for him. So that must have um, been part of the reason why people never would have thought to dig in that smaller tomb. Another reason might have been that there was a block to the entrance of the tomb meaning one of the workers' houses was actually built right in front of the entrance to the tomb. So that's another theory. A third theory is that the pharaohs who followed King Tut did not want him to be remembered, and so they did everything in their power to erase his name from history, including tearing down the statues that were erected, in commemoration of King Tut and his legacy and his um, kingdom, right? And so that was the one that intrigued me the most. Because when I went to visit Egypt in 2019, I did go visit King Tut's tomb. And what I found out during that moment was that Egyptians, ancient Egyptians, believe that you die not once, but twice, right? Isn't that fascinating? So the first death is when you take your last breath, and that's when they bury you, and you supposedly go to the underworld. But the second form of death is when people stop saying your name, and they stop remembering who you are, which is how they tried to kill King Tut the second time around by erasing his name from history books and from the collective memory until 1922, when all of a sudden he came back to life. It's as if he had a resurrection of a sort, right? 
And that's when the whole world began to say his name and he came alive again. Now fast forward to 2017, there's this company called Pixar and Disney that made a movie called Coco. How many of you have seen that movie? Raise your hands, all right, no, quite a bit of you, right? So if you recall in this movie, the main character's name is Miguel. And Miguel was forbidden, he was a young boy, he was forbidden by his family to play any kind of musical instrument or to sing or anything that remotely resembles music. And the reason for that is that his great-great-grandfather ran out on the family unexpectedly and disappeared from the face of the earth. Now, the only person who even remembered or could say this great-great-grandfather's name was Miguel's great-grandmother, Coco, which is who the movie is named after. Now, she would mention his name, but she suffered from a disease called Alzheimer's, which makes one forget, right? And so one day, during El Dia de los Muertos, which is also called the Day of the Dead, a tradition that Mexicans and Aztec people celebrated, Miguel accidentally and magically entered the land of the dead, right? Which is where all our ancestors go and all our loved ones go when they die. It's literally crossing this bridge to get there. And Miguel, after a while, I'm not gonna tell you the whole story here, but he actually ended up trying to find his great-great-grandfather in the land of the dead. And initially, Miguel thought that he was related to the superstar rock star in Mexico named Ernesto de la Cruz, a very famous musician. And he thought that the reason why he didn't see his great-great-grandfather again was because he got famous and all of a sudden left his family. But, and here's a spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen the movie, he eventually found out that Ernesto was not his great-great-grandfather after all. But rather, the guy who accompanied him, he thought he was a homeless and nobody, but it ended up that that guy, Hector, was actually the one who gave birth to Coco and was indeed Miguel's great-great-grandfather, right? Which was so surprising to him. And at the end of the movie, the greatest fear it's not just that Miguel wouldn't be able to get back in time, meaning back to the land of the living before sunrise, but the other fear is that his great-great-grandfather's name, Hector, will not, be, will not be said out loud, and that Hector would disappear from the face of the world, both the land of the living and the land of the dead. And again, since we're into spoilers here, at the end of the movie, what saves this whole family and what saves the whole situation was 
Miguel learning that the reason why Hector died was because he wrote most of these songs that was popularized by Ernesto and stole, and, and Ernesto stole it from him after he poisoned Hector to death. Are you with me so far? And are you all remembering the story at this point, right? So how to, how to save the day, how to make everything right? Miguel ends up learning the song that Hector used to sing to Coco. And do you remember the song? Remember me, right? I'm not gonna sing you the rest of the song because you know this is what the music video is for that we're gonna play after the sermon. But this song talks about how when we remember someone, that's when we bring them alive again and that's when their presence becomes um, uh, tangible and palpable in our lives. So at the end of the movie, it's a very sweet scene. No matter how many times I watch it, I keep crying at the end of this movie, right? Because um, Miguel sings it to Coco and that's how Coco remembers who her papa was and that's how they are able to bring the picture back to the ofrenda and make Hector sort of, kind of, come back to life again. Now, you may be asking, what the heck is an ofrenda, right? So an ofrenda is basically like an altar, kind of like where we have the chalice right now, um, and it's usually in people's homes. So it's not just in churches or houses of worship, but it's in a home, and you usually put up a picture of a dead loved one to remember them and to honor them. Now, I remember growing up as a child when I would visit my grandmother um, and her house, there was an altar or, you know, I guess um, in Spanish that would be called an ofrenda, sitting right there as you enter the house. And in it was a picture of my grandfather. And it's in black and white. This is how old I am, right? And the picture depicted my grandfather who was bald, and I remember being scared looking at that picture because it seems like the, his eyes followed me around wherever I was, you know, and was watching me and making sure I wasn't a naughty kid, right? And, um, but not only that, what scared me the most is that I was afraid that when I got older like him, I would become bald. So that was the scariest part of all, because they do say that you get your baldness from your maternal grandfather, right? So anyway, that was my first exposure to um, an ofrenda where they, my, my mother would make flower arrangements in front of this picture and sometimes put food and beverages in front of it. It's to honor um, our, our um, dead loved ones. And so again, I thought it was interesting that through music, that, that not only did Hector come alive again, but Coco came alive, and the rest of the family came alive and began to accept Miguel playing a guitar and playing music for the rest of the family. So that's also when Miguel came alive in that moment. So there was a second life, so to speak, after um, all this death that has happened and after he was told that he couldn't play music anymore. And it made me think about different cultures and throughout time and history of how 
there's so many references to dying a second time, just like the Egyptians and the Aztecs and the Mexicans believed, right? And what would it mean for us to not have people die the second time around? So today, we are going to engage in an activity that would name the names of our dead loved ones so that they wouldn't need to die a second death. And later on, the choir is going to sing a song for us called We Are, which is actually from our teal hymnal. This was written by um, Issei Barnwell. And the chorus says that we are the breath of our ancestors. And I'd like to add to that that not only are we the breath of our ancestors, but we breathe new life to our ancestors whenever we say their names out loud. And that whenever we do that, we acknowledge that they're not gone, but their presence is very much here with us. Again, in um, Hispanic and Latinx culture, there's a moment when you name the name of a, a dead loved one, and you say presente, meaning present, right? To acknowledge that they are really here with us whenever we mention their names aloud. So we will honor our ancestors later on today and make sure that they are alive in our memories, as the children was telling us earlier about what memories mean, right? And we will hold them in our hearts and in our minds to keep their legacy and their memory alive. Hi, and welcome to Getting the Message, where we dive deeper into today's service themes. Uh, we hope that you might appreciate the background of the choir rehearsing, um, in case you can hear it. We're gonna do our best to make sure that that is not present in the audio, uh, but it's a little gift for you if it is present in your audio. Reverend Jennifer, it's great to get to sit down again. Thank you, Amber, likewise. So Remembrance Sunday is a, you know, kind of a special, but regular, a regular special service, <laughs> uh, an annual service that we have an here at Fourth Universalist. Right. So it's it's something that is kind of built into the life of our congregation. This, this Sunday that's important for stepping back and remembering those we've lost mm -hmm. and grieving and holding that space. Um, Although this will be the first time for me. That's true. Or it was the first time for me, I should say. Have you had Remembrance Sundays at other congregations that you've been part of? Something similar, but not quite exactly done the same way. So this way of doing Remembrance Sunday as, you know, remembering a bunch of people, taking this day to specifically grieve, to remember, to honor, is a very, like, fourth you kind of way of doing things. Yeah, and it was interesting to see how the worship arts theme, for example, provided the institutional memory, because again, this was my first time right. doing that. And there was quite a bit of back and forth around whether or not we're going to also um, have a separate service for Halloween, but there's just not enough Sundays in the month of October. And we decided to um, just have the Remembrance Sunday commemoration. And the tone of it, um, we wanted to keep a more reverential tone because Halloween sometimes could get out of hand with kids and maybe even adults coming in costume and having a lighter feel versus we wanted to make sure that we do take this intentional time to honor 
our ancestors and those who have gone before us. You know, I will admit the you know, this is my reason for ever buying a costume is for um, Halloween Sunday here. So it is a year without a costume for me because um, you know, there's this is my usual time that I come in costume somewhere. Well, there's three more days. It's true. We can, we can see what happens. So there's plenty of other opportunities for you to engage in the festivities. But, um, you know, I think it's interesting with Halloween, like Remembrance Sunday and Halloween uh, coming up so close against each other this year, mm -hmm. uh, where in past years we've been able to spread them out a little bit. Mm -hmm. But Samhain and so many of these other, like, uh, cultures mm -hmm. have basically, you know, times of remembrance, times of, like, honoring the dead at, at this time of year. You know, do you think that there's a particular reason, like, why fall harvest season? Like, what... You know, what about that makes people think like, okay, dead people. <laughs> well, again, this is my first year um, here in New York and witnessing the changing of the seasons, for example. And it may be because, um, you know, Central Park, I overlook it from my living room and you could actually see the colors changing and the leaves falling. So perhaps that evokes a sense of nature has a way of going through the cycles of life and death and rebirth. And so um, it's a great observation in terms of we are part of nature. We are, we, we too as human beings go through this whole process of living and dying. Now the whole question of rebirth is um, one that many theologians have debated over the years and even Unitarian Universalists don't necessarily have a unanimous uh, or um, a unified theology around it. But I do feel like indigenous cultures acknowledge that the dead are not as far away as we think. So there's a certain sense of closeness to those who have gone on before us versus in Western society and Western culture Perhaps that's, um, uh, it, 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 you know, especially with the scientific rational perspective that we tend to um, isolate and relegate death to something that happens in a clinical setting like a hospital, for example. And many of us don't even get to see the body and um, people are either cremated or just put in a casket without an opportunity to have that that um, that moment to both say goodbye and then in the future to remember those who have gone before us. So this is a great opportunity for us to um, come together as a community and grieve, I feel like, and also to celebrate the life of, um, again, those who have gone before us. As you were... There's about 18 different things that, that I, you know, felt like I could bring up there. But one of the things that I was thinking about as, as you were uh, talking is, you know, like you're saying, the Western culture. Uh, and I mean, we saw it with, especially with COVID, like the, mm -hmm. it was basically like, yeah. okay, these, these older yeah. elder communities, like, yeah. you know, bummer. Mm -hmm. um, if they, yeah. you know, that's, you know, there was sitting house representatives that were, I'm sure that the grandparents would be okay with dying if it means that we can have our freedoms um, mm -hmm. about like the COVID lockdowns and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so 
we have like this really negative attitude towards aging. We have this really mm -hmm. uh, scared attitude towards death. And like, it makes me think uh, I've been doing, you know, uh, I've been reading the Iliad mm -hmm. um, and there was much more of a sense of like that, like, you know, they weren't particularly excited about death, but that it wasn't like a lot of cultures had a very different view of death, a very different relation to death. Whereas like, we view it as like this, the end of productivity because um, <laughs> uh, we're very capitalist culture, mm -hmm. um, but that it's something that we're afraid of instead of, instead of something, you know, that that could, you know, be seen as like, wow, we've lived like through this really amazing life or, you know, there, there's, there's other ways to view death. I, should, I guess I should. Um, Indeed. And I wonder if the fear of death is more about what one is not able to accomplish in with the finitude of life with the short lifespan that we have in on this planet <laughs> i wonder if there's a sense of um regret perhaps that you know in some ways we spent too many years on our misspent youth sometimes as as we say or that we haven't accomplished the amount of greatness that society expects of us. Again, whatever that means in this Western hustle and bustle kind of lifestyle that we have, right? And and again, the, the finitude of it, you know, to say that the moment we die, that that's it, is in some ways what the two stories I mentioned during the sermon is challenging. Is there um, a second form of death that we go through perhaps, you know, according to ancient Egyptian cosmology and belief systems, um, as well as um, the, the Mexican Aztec heritage that is uh, played out every year with El Dia de los Muertos. There's so many different ways of looking at this that would take the fear out of death, right. like you were saying earlier. Yeah, so I think that, yeah, we, we have this really, um, in, in American culture, maybe in particular, because um, I don't, you know, I, would, I wouldn't dare say it's a universal thing, mm -hmm. um, but that, yeah, we have this um, compartmentalizing of death, too, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um you know, especially with um, the Protestant heritage of mm -hmm. of the United States, um, where it was, you know, kind of down with tradition, um, which you know was a, a very fair like. Um, but one of the things that when I interacted with Catholic theology a lot um, that I really liked was that tradition was democracy of the dead; that it was giving mm -hmm. voice to those who had come before us, um, and hearing what they had to say and how they saw it and what they understood. And, you know, I don't think that means letting those traditions run forever and ever and ever and always and never change. But, you know, I think that there is, um, you know, we, we fear things becoming tradition or ritual in the United mm -hmm. States mm -hmm. um, because we want like always new, always changing. Um, and uh, sometimes there is something powerful about ritual or tradition that connects us to our ancestors that came before us. Indeed. And again, my seminary professor, Marjorie Suhaki, said that traditions live in and through its own creative transformation. 
And even Catholic theology has changed over the years. You know, is there such a thing as purgatory or not? Or where do people go if they haven't had a chance to ask for absolution and forgiveness, right? And um, even our universalist heritage talks about this whole idea of, um, they, didn't, they didn't really call it purgatory, but a, a period of restoration. So this was the good the old restoration purgatory. controversy during the 19th century, right? right. A, a universalist form of um, cleansing oneself and sanctifying um, the spirit or the soul before it actually goes to heaven, if heaven is a location. And again, the, that theology has evolved over the years as well. So it's interesting how the more we learn and the more we experience things, um, our views about life and death also evolves. Reverend Joffer, thanks for sitting down and talking about death with me today. <laughs> Um, and thank you for thank uh, you, Amber. Thank it you sounds for, like such a somber and right? morbid topic, doesn't it? I mean, I, however, am excited that it is a multi-gen service, so I get to actually uh, hear it presented in person. You get to see a crack, and this is recorded beforehand today. Um, <laughs> Are we actually admitting that? We don't tell anybody. <laughs> um, but uh, it will be uh, exciting to get to, you know. Indeed, and it'll be exciting the conversations that the parents hopefully will have with their kids about death and dying. That's going to be a good Sunday. Thank you, Jonfer. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next see week. See you next week. Mm -hmm.